Now, what is K-Native? If you played Family Feud with this one right now, you'd probably get answers ranging from a service mesh to that Google Pivotal thing to the one you use with Kubernetes when you're doing microservices. Well, Jacques Chester, author of the upcoming K-Native in Action, is going to tell us what it is and what it has to do with Apache Kafka on today's episode of Streaming Audio, a podcast about Kafka, Confluent, and the cloud. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Streaming Audio. I am, as ever, your host, Tim Berglund, joined in the virtual studio today by Jacques Chester. Jacques is a software engineer with uh, VMware via the Pivotal acquisition, and he is the author of Manning's upcoming K-Native in Action. Jacques, welcome to Streaming Audio. Uh, thank you. This is a very lovely virtual studio. I particularly like the neon uh, lights in the grid. Yes. <laughs> it's uh, we, uh, only, only the finest for our guests here at Streaming yeah. Audio. So. You got that cyberpunk chic. I like it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, hey, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you, um, like, what's, what's your background as an engineer? And mm. uh, what caused you to make the decision to write a technical book and a book on Knative? Sure. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I've been sort of engineering in various capacities for a while now. Uh, Pivotal's been where I really, I think, found my feet as an engineer uh, over the last six years or so. Um, the the thing that sort of brought me to Knative was I was, at the time that Google approached us about it, working for the Pivotal Function Service team, and we were asked to take a look at it and work out how it might fit into our strategy. And our advice was sort of like, let's go into it hard, Let, let's get involved. Um, later on, uh, I was approached by Manning to, to write the book. Um, and uh, here I am. I love it. Hmm. Um, we're going to really talk about Knative today, so get us started. Um, what is Knative? Uh, maybe give us its superhero origin story, some idea of problems it solves. Uh, walk us through that. Yeah, I always like superhero origin stories. I use that analogy in the book at least once. Um, in, in the sense that usually there's something horrible going on or something something toxic or radioactive or something bites you. And, right, right. And, and in this case, if we're going for the superhero origin story, then, then we'd be talking about, you know, Kubernetes being amazing, right? It's an incredible sort of like, uh, I, I guess, like uh, a symbiote to, to go with the Spider-Man, not Spider-Man, the other bloke analogy. Yes. I can already hear the people, lin you know, the lynch mob forming outside my the, door. Yeah, uh, symbiote would be Venom. Thank you. Or Thank you. the uh, in the '80s, there was the the black costume that he got from during the Secret Wars on the Beyonders planet, and, and that's right. There was also Carnage, who was like the the Venom of Venom. Yeah, um, yeah. So there, there are several Spider-Man symbiotes are possible here. Right. We could we could use I, any of them. So I'm redeemed. Thank yeah. goodness. Yeah. So anyway, you, you've got you've got Kubernetes. It has incredible powers that it grants you. But one of the difficulties with Kubernetes historically, and it's funny to say historically for a five year old system that. It, it never really distinguished between what do developers do and what do operators do. Uh, it sort of mixes those concerns all together. A and th that can be a hassle some of the time. Kenita basically sort of says, you know, let's, let's create a firm contract between those two different roles. Let's make it so that it's easy for developers to get on and, and just run some software in a sensible way, sensible defaults that fit together easily um, without necessarily sort of having to learn all the different nooks and crannies. Uh, of Kubernetes. Got it. So, I mean, give, me, give me an idea what some of those are. It's it's true. Mm. It, mm. That's a good insight. It's funny. I've never 
thought those words, but uh, you say Kubernetes doesn't really distinguish between what developers and operators do. That's very true. That's probably regarded as a feature, right? If you're supposed to DevOps, you're not supposed to have these these totally distinct roles, but it doesn't always yeah. work out that way. Um, no. So yeah, give us an idea of what some of those problems are. Sure. It's interesting you should sort of say that. I'll, I'll, I'll pick on that a second. I think a good example is uh, routing, for example. I deploy a piece of software. It, it needs traffic to come to it now. If I am in Kubernetes land, there's a whole. There, there are actually multiple ways to achieve that, um, and they've all got pros and cons. And I have to learn all of them to understand what I'm doing. You know, not long ago, I was working on a product where you know the next story that came up was add HTTPS support. I thought this will be this will be easy, and then a week and a half later, I sort of you know crawled out of out of the pit of misery, covered in <laughs> covered in scars. You know, and I'd learned all sorts of amazing stuff. And I was like, why did I have to learn any of this stuff? And the, the thing that, for me, eliminates that division of roles is that Pivotal, for a very long time, has been the driving force behind Cloud Foundry, which uh, is a platform as a service uh, that does draw that, that distinction quite sharply between what is there to make life easier for developers, what is there to make life easier for operators. And... My radio has just now decided to make a lot of noise. Um, just imagine that it's angry operators banging. Exactly. No, that's angry operators yeah. banging because they have been asked to do things that developers should have done. No, they wouldn't be angry about that. They're used to it. Right, and vice versa. So that's the thing. So th this goes back to the DevOps question. I feel that DevOps was right in the sense that it was like, let's break down the barriers and, and recognize each other as humans and that the ancient models are not quite as exact as they seem. But, there's always a but. Yes. I think the thing that DevOps addressed itself really to was that the costs of uh, how we did things fell uh, unfairly. So what do I mean by that? So for example, in a classical you know, dev and ops world, never the twain shall meet. If I'm a developer and I make something buggy and I throw it over the wall and it crashes, it's the operator who carries the cost, right? They're the ones who feel the pain. Yeah, they get paged. Exactly, they get paged. And then uh, vice versa, if I'm a developer and I need something provisioned and the operator takes their time, then I'm the one who feels the pain. I'm being held up. My work is being held up. And DevOps was supposed to sort of help us with that. And in a lot of places, it was very successful. But what I would submit is that the difficulty there was not so much just the personal relationships. It was that we were missing the understanding that it was it was a a problem of making sure that the costs fell fairly. Um, so, for example, in, in something like Cloud Foundry or Knative, uh, and to a lesser degree in Kubernetes, like vanilla Kubernetes, the way it's architected means that when a developer does something that causes you know, a heroic breakage, the system can constrain that or contain it to them. And so the cost of it, the, the pain of it, falls back onto the developer who rightfully should, should carry it. And similarly, if the platform makes it very easy to obtain services and resources and have them injected and provides logging and, and routing and ingress and all these other facilities automatically, uh, then that cost of getting those things set up doesn't fall onto the developer. Uh, it falls onto the operator, but it's, it's industrialized and automated. And so in that sense, it's not a bad thing to have those distinctions between the roles. It's not a bad thing to have a firm but fair contract between the roles. And most of the pain that comes about is that there is an 
inevitable tension between the costs that arise because of complexity, like the, the many people having to coordinate their actions, versus the costs that arise from a lack of specialization. You know, DevOps, you know, moved away from specialization, but you lose something when you do that. Um, and I come from, you know, one of the, the high priesthoods of generalists at Pivotal Labs, and, and I still see the value of specialization. Um, it's all about working out how to work together effectively. In your book, which is at the time of this recording and publication in a few weeks, uh, publication of this podcast, this book is still upcoming. I was going to say, geez, in a couple of weeks, that's <laughs> yeah, great. Sorry, you have to finish it now. Who, who finished <laughs> it? <laughs> uh, you're thinking it was for darn sure, not me. Um, and and you know, as, as an aside, of course, I, I know the enormous undertaking that writing a technical book is. And uh, it's I, I appreciate that you are undertaking that effort for the benefit of the K-Native community, it's, it's going to be a very helpful thing. Um, and I actually don't know how far along you are uh, when it's due, and you don't need to commit to any of those things on air. But my question is, uh, when you get started explaining K-Native, now in the typical Manning in-action book, um, mm-hmm. that in-action is, uh, I said that quickly, I should clarify, you know, technology name in-action is a Manning yes. brand. That's not inaction mm-hmm. like passivity yeah. right it's it's yeah, yeah. it's not just chilling. <laughs> gonna lay around in the barca lounger uh for k native's sake k native in action uh how do you begin explaining it um what what mm. what's the what's your path there for the newcomer because uh, the in action series yeah. assumes that you may in fact be a newcomer yeah and and so i sort of break that down into a couple of different ways uh of addressing it one of one of them is that that role separation all that addressing itself to developers thing i just talked about Another way to talk about it is that it is a collection of components that extend Kubernetes seamlessly using sort of Kubernetes uh, facilities to create a, you know, a seamless extension process. Uh, another way of looking at it is that it is two major components serving and eventing that address themselves to different parts of the, the problem of, of building cloud-native applications and functions and systems. Um, it's difficult, like many such things. You, you know, in the book, I, I have exactly this uh, discussion where I, I try to sort of ex- introduce it in multiple different ways because it's such a tough question. Um, but like a lot of things, it becomes clearer when you start chewing it what it tastes like. Um, I had that experience with Kubernetes. I was like, "What is Kubernetes really? No, really, what is it?" You know, and y- you could read the blog articles and. Yeah, there were there were tweets at twenty paces going on and all that sort of stuff. But you know, it wasn't until I sort of sat down with the book and and went through it and did some exercises that I started to go, oh, okay, okay, there's there's no deep mystery here. He says right after you know making fun of Kubernetes ten minutes ago, but <laughs> which was true at that point. I will to to excuse myself. Um, yeah, the the very basic primitives were pretty pretty straightforward. It's just that there are many many knobs and dials, right? And so uh, you're saying, in a sense, it's like the matrix. No one can tell you what K-Native is. You have to see it for yourself. It sounds like a cop-out. I know. It is a little. Um, it is, and it, it's yeah. you're writing the book on this. So you have to tell me. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, well, I mean, I don't have to. I mean, my advice is like, well, you should read that's the book. That's true. Um, that's true. You, so you should give yeah. me a, a tantalizing but still incomplete uh, you know, paragraph summary of... I'll, I'll say this. My focus in the book is on a reader who doesn't know K-Native 
obviously, but also doesn't have to know Kubernetes. I don't want you to have to be a Kubernetes expert before you read the book. What I want you to be as you come into this book is a developer with some experience, you know, you, you've, you've seen some stuff. Um, you don't have necessarily Kubernetes experience or functions as a service experience. You, you might have heard of them. You, you might not have read very deeply into them. And I want you to be able to like hit the ground running and start to be able to do things with your software. I want you as a developer to be able to say, okay, Knative solves these kinds of key problems for me. How does the traffic actually get to and from my software? How do I uh, update the software reliably? Um, these sorts of questions uh, are the ones that Knative sets out to solve for developers, and that's the audience I'm addressing myself to. Awesome. What's the relationship between Knative and serverless? Oh, serverless, good old serverless. Um, You're welcome my, to my, provide my, your account of what serverless means in the mm, answer. I've, I've discovered that there are two definitions of serverless in circulation. Uh, the one I like is that you don't care about the existence or non-existence of servers. Um, that's familiar to me. I knew that for a long time as platform as a service. Um, it, it, it's been around forever. Like it, when I do a, uh, if I'm using Cloud Foundry as an example, when I do a CF push, you know, it ships off source code. I, I don't care that there are servers. I don't care where it runs. It was the same with Heroku. Heroku pioneered this and an app engine as well. You know, you, you don't think about servers when you send something to Heroku until the bill shows up. Anyway, right. Um, right. So generally speaking, that was that was the sort of the thing. Um, so that's one definition of serverless. The other definition of serverless is, uh, and by pure coincidence, this suits Amazon. Amazon's definition of serverless, which happens to me, all of those things, comma, but uh, the servers belong to Amazon. Um, okay. so. Call me a cynic if you like. Well, Amazon, Amazon's, to, to be fairer to them, the, the argument that they're making is more subtle, is that they believe serverless extends to not only that the developer does not care about the servers, but also that at some level the operators don't care about the servers. And for them that means that there needs to be an economic boundary between the entity which owns and operates the servers and the developers and operators who you know, consume that serverless capability. Uh, but it just so happens that definition means Lambda to them. What a coincidence. Right, right. Which, um, as the term evolves, um, I'm, I'm trying to bring that up as often as possible. Uh, mm. Serverless entered our collective consciousness as a development community through AWS Lambda. Um, that's that's mm -hmm. when they started using that word, and everybody made jokes, and uh, you know, it's been yep. a few years, but... Uh, it functions as a service, I think, is let's just mm -hmm. let's just say there's one account of serverless that means functions as a service, which means there's, you know, the way you normally tell that story is there's this um, continuum of deployment artifacts where on one end there is this bespoke, carefully crafted server where you've got root access and you do all these things to it. Uh, and then there's a VM and then there's a container. And now we're just going to mm -hmm. have a function, you know, and that's our unit of deployment. Um so that's yeah. serverless. That's the one kind of serverless. But the other one, um, I don't. I don't think this is the other definition you gave. So let me propose a third. That is the good old scales to zero uh, mm -hmm. definition, where regardless, mm -hmm. you know, this lets us talk about serverless Kafka. I've occasionally described Confluent Cloud that way, and I, I don't think that's any part of Confluent's official 
go to market or, or approved phrasing or everything. But here I am on the podcast saying it anyway. Um, <laughs> no, 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 it's no. just happening. It'll be our secret. <laughs> That's right. No one else. Only a few thousand other people will know. Um, just, just you and me and a few thousand of our closest friends. Right. No, but it's it's uh, just by way of analogy and illustration. Um, you know, you've got this fully managed Kafka service where if you don't, if you're not storing anything in a topic and you're not doing any pub sub on a topic, you're not producing or consuming from it. It doesn't cost you anything. And what you pay for is writing and reading and storing. Um, and if you don't do any of those things, there's no residual cost. So that scale to zero or no residual cost is what serverless. That's that's my favorite definition I, of serverless. I think I think that's a better definition. And, and I'll, I'll I'll sort of like expand on that if I may. Um, yeah, the definition I gave was mostly around mostly around engineering sort of centric things and the experience of a developer. And I sort of touched on the economic side of it um, with with you know making fun of Amazon. And I think you did a better job. You know, and now that I'm thinking about it, it's like when I when I buy electricity, I'm not calling it generatorless. No, right? you're not. No. And and what I'm seeing now is that there's sort of two different kinds of ways that you buy stuff from a vendor. And and one of them is you buy capacity. So you buy your virtual machine, you buy your container, <clears throat> you're running instances of whatever. You know your your Kafka partitions. And the other one is you buy consumption, uh, and that's where, for example, generatorless technology becomes a thing. You know, I don't buy you know six hundred megawatts of capacity. Oh, I don't want to do six hundred megawatts. I don't. I don't buy like a megawatt or two of capacity to run my house. I just take watts off the wire and use them, uh, and then I pay for the consumption. And it's up to uh, the electricity company to work out how they're going to do that. Good analogy. There you go. Thanks. So, uh, yeah. does Knative have anything to do with serverless? It does in the the sort of difficult to speak of it as marketing, but you know the um, the, the site uh, when you know Knative yeah. t- telling it's telling the world about itself uses the S word. Yeah. So why is that? It does. <laughs> That's right. Um, yes, it does. Put on the cape with an S in it, and no, nobody shows up with a, an affidavit. Right. Um, the thing this this is where that that economic boundary thing comes in. This is why I think Amazon are so keen to define it the way they define it as, as essentially like different economic owners of, of the infrastructure is what makes it serverless. Um, because they argue that installable you know, functions as a service or what have you are not quote unquote truly serverless because you still own and operate something inside your economic boundary. And, and so by their definition, Knative, for example, wouldn't count. But the thing is that uh, all of these things are in some respects relative and you are drawing a boundary which happens in this case to be the boundary of uh, legal ownership, right? Amazon LLC versus uh, your company LLC. But within a large company, those organizations have independent identity from each other. And so the developer who works in the such and such line of business might as well be buying that service from Amazon as much as from their central IT service. It's still serverless to them. You would have, I no doubt, worked with some of the same customers as Pivotal and VMware work with where the organization is so large that independent units of it are Fortune 500 companies in their own right. And you can feel like a flea clambering over an elephant, or actually more fairly like a, a small bird, you know, picking the nits off an elephant. Uh, but every time you land in a different spot, it, it's all new. Uh, it's like a different company. So in that respect, yes, it is serverless. I, I disagree with the Amazon characterization. I, I see Knative as serverless. Somebody somewhere is, is going to stop caring about servers. It's serverless. And this may be... Um this may be a, a, a little bit too deep of a drill down, but I, I like that 
big company picture you just painted there and the things that happen coordinating different parts of a big company. Uh, it, I think matters a little bit less whether the securities exchange commission wants to see an integrated, you know, comprehensive financial statement from all parts of an organization and whether there's a legal entity that they all roll up to or they're separate legal entities, you know, who cares? That's not really the point. The point is, and this gets into well, a, a concept in economics. There was a, a 20th century economics or economist, British guy named Coase, who uh, mm-hmm. famous for a number of things, but one was his theory of the firm. Like, why are there companies? Exactly. Um, yes. And the Coasean theory of the firm is that there are companies because uh, accessing the market, like we normally coordinate access to goods and services through the market, but accessing the market costs something. There's a transaction cost. Like mm-hmm. um, if I have to go buy a light bulb, I have to go to the store and pick one out. And that's actually really hard now because there's all these cool LED bulbs. Um, so it costs me something to go to go access the market. The firms exist because there are these little communities of like-minded people with a common purpose who don't use market mechanisms, who use something more like command and control, central planning uh, inside the firm. Like I have a team, they have to do what I say. And, and you know, another team will agree to serve me and they don't charge me back for it. They just do it because we're all, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so that's this, this cozy well, idea is yeah. at some point there's this transaction cost boundary where it's just a pain in the butt to use market mechanisms to coordinate. And so you just get together and you use central planning and it works better. Uh, well, in a gigantic company, guess what? Um, it, yeah. those, it is actually better to treat it like a marketplace. And, uh, yeah, you, you wind up with a kind of a fractal problem yeah. and, and the size of firms has a, a strong relationship between the ever shifting balance of, of like market coordination and, and command coordination, yeah, which is why private cloud is a thing. Um, that's why private, private cloud is a meaningful phrase. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and. You know, it, I'm so glad you brought up Coase because if I have amongst my thousands of rants about my profession, one of them is, God damn it, we need to read more economics. Yes. <laughs> um, the the number of sort of interminable debates that turn out to have been taught in, you know, economics 102 or 201 is very frustrating. Um, so, for example, Coasean theory, you know, the, one of the classic debates is, oh, should I pull in a dependency or should I write my own? And there'll be a great deal of beard stroking on Hacker News about, you know, you must always pull it in or no, pulling in is wasteful and I'm smart enough to write the simple one that I need right now and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, no, this is this is literally the Cosian problem. It, it is literally the Cosian problem. There's a transaction cost for pulling in dependency. There's a different cost for taking direct action. Uh, and, and there's going to be a balance between those two. There isn't a hard and fast universal principle. It's it's an economic decision. They all are in disguise. And when we see something like, say, Kafka Streams, that kind of complexity, um, it's very much worth paying the transaction cost of, of taking pulling in the dependency. If, for example, maybe you're left aligning strings, mm-hmm. as we found out a few years ago, maybe that's not the time for that, <laughs> and that could be a bad thing. So, yes. Well, I don't think I don't think all of us sort of had to start doing value at risk uh, estimates. <laughs> If you'll excuse me, that's a great idea. I'm going to be right back. I've got to go see a VC. Um, <laughs> that's a friend of mine said back then. Uh, it was Matt Stein. I'll just I'll just name him. He uh, he tweeted mm-hmm. like Uber, but for left aligned strings. <laughs> so, um, and I should put a link in the show notes uh, to that whole episode in case there's anybody who doesn't remember that from a few years ago. But let's get back to uh, let's get back to K Native. 
so there's this inter- yeah. there's this relationship to serverless kind of. I mean, it, it certainly makes it proposes that that relationship. Um, also, Istio and just the general notion of service meshes. Now, Knative does not mm-hmm. uh, does not exist in that category, correct? You'd never no, you'd never call no. it a service mesh. But- no, and and uh, interestingly, there's been an evolution with the relationship to service meshes. Early on, Istio was a hard dependency for Knative. You go back to the early slides, and it's like we're taking the best of Kubernetes and Istio, and you know, making making a delicious pie. It, it turns out a lot of the things Istio provides were not strictly necessary for the mission uh, that Knative sets out to solve, and there are alternatives for the parts that it does try to solve, primarily around the business of having a piece of traffic come off the wire and who gets to do something with it, you know, your ingress and your routing and so on and so forth. So there are a lot of alternatives there. You can use the SDO gateway, uh, you can use Ambassador, Glue, Contour. Almost all of these are basically uh, using Envoy in some form or fashion as they run time. Whereas the second big thing that Istio does for you in terms of container to container traffic management turns out to be less of a thing in Knative and some might argue uh, that it's become less of a thing in the general Kubernetes world. Bear with me again, uh, mob outside the door with with let's, pitchforks. Because let's, no, I want that to become less of a thing. So I'm, I am, you have my interest and attention. <laughs> sure, I, I would say basically there are things that that model help a lot with. Termination is a really big one, but a lot of the security, like the what would you call it, the threat model for a service mesh is that you have a very large shared cluster and you want zero trust between the tenants of that cluster. The thing is that Kubernetes itself does not have a strong or hard tenancy model. And so at some level, that security is great. You've got like the padlock on the network door and then somebody just goes through the drywall on the side for the rest of it and it doesn't really matter. So what you see now is everybody is skating very hard towards multi-cluster systems where you have many, many Kubernetes clusters dedicated to many, many purposes. And then the security problem becomes, like the network trust problem becomes a lot easier because you've, instead of trying to partition the tenants at the network traffic level, you're more or less partitioning them at the cluster level. It's like the boundaries of each cluster become where that, that policy has to be applied. And that's much simpler and you don't need quite as much overhead, uh, quite much, as much sophistication. That being said, Istio continues to evolve. We're all still, you know, feeling out the, the, the stones, you know, feeling our way across the river with our feet, that sort of thing. Um, and that will continue to evolve. I mean, I sound very smart and wise and all-knowing, and uh, these are all things that are not obvious until we've done them. Um, I'm sure there was somebody somewhere who, like, wandered in from the desert and told us that, you know, judgment was upon us and Istio would be bad for something. And congratulations to that person. Um, but generally speaking, we we often find that our deep assumptions are wrong only after we've banged on them for a right. while. It's, and the single cluster thing is is a deep assumption that's turned out to be okay. wrong. Okay, okay. Does that imply that containers within the clusters trust each other and it's it's zero trust between clusters or what you started with? with- yeah. Yeah, yeah. As as it as it's just as it exists now, Knative is um, you know fairly all or nothing. It does want to cluster more or less to itself, or or, or it's best set up that way. Um, 
So what I mean by that is like if you have, you, you could run multiple applications on your Knative, but if you have, for example, top level settings of your Knative that are not suitable for different applications, you're going to need another cluster uh, to do that properly. And while that's being improved, and I'm sure somebody will correct me in the comments, uh, hi Matt, Scott, Vilay, uh, <laughs> whoever else listens to this and goes, what is he doing? Um, by, by and large, that, that's been sort of the starting point. And I think part of that actually came out of the design pressure that came bubbles upwards from Istio. Got it. Uh, I've lost my train of thought. No, but that uh, we, we sure were talking about uh, just the security characteristics of, of each individual cluster changes when you go to this multi-cluster. Mm-hmm. It does. And, and that's an evolving situation. Um, you know, I think it took us a while to get to this point because... The speaking of superhero origin story, the origin story of Kubernetes is uh, workload consolidation. You know, finish efficiently packing the compute resources you have with the workloads you have, um, and it, and it's just sort of simple mathematics that the more things you have to pack into, and the more things you have to pack, the more efficiently you can pack. Um, that that just that just turns out yeah. to be uh, a, you know pooling variance um, shows up all over the place, right? The problem is, of course, that you have that security boundary problem, and the only way currently to solve that, to really solve it in Kubernetes, is you have to have a different cluster, and then you lose some of those those um, some of those efficiencies. Uh, people are working on ways around that. You know, watch this space. But um, so that that's where we sort of wound up. So everyone was sort of like, okay, we really need to build a big cluster, and and full credit to Red Hat, they did an enormous amount of work in productionizing and, and enterprising, as it were. Uh, Kubernetes, they they are responsible for RBAC, they're responsible for for a lot of things, and, and now a lot of other enterprise companies are involved as well in, in in making these things better. But there is a certain level at which you absolutely have to have a physical separation between the clusters, or your security model is not suitable for certain things, or your configurations you know stomp on each other uh, in a way that's not very not very desirable. Right. Now, uh, turning the page a little bit, some of the language you have been using, and it was more the language you were using when you were talking about Istio, um, but um, some of the language you have been using uh, sounds to me like the language of microservices that make uh, synchronous calls to each other, where there's some sort of RESTful or, or gRPC or you know whatever, some sort of synchronous API between services. And I, I realize that's, um, really the purpose of, of a thing like Istio and the service meshes is to solve the problems that attend that uh, architectural um, opinion, that set of architectural opinions. Mm-hmm. Uh, to mm-hmm. what degree is Knative coupled to that same paradigm? This is, of course, a setup so for it, the it, Kafka. Everybody, if you're wondering when we're going to talk about Kafka, we're going to get to Kafka in a minute. I'm getting there. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. We're getting there. It's still in the stream. It it's is, on its way. It uh, you know, just a few offsets. That's exactly. Right. Um, yeah. So the, the, there's two answers to that question. Um, the first answer is uh, that it has a strongly request response centric design as it is now. Um, especially the, the sort of the two components: there's serving and eventing. Um, serving is definitely you know all about HTTP, um, and you know. That, that's where Istio Service Mesh makes a lot of sense and so on and so forth. You know, the, the conveniences that give you are suited for HTTP applications. There is a continuously still evolving effort in eventing. Um, designs in eventing have 
at times looked very requesty responsy, if mm -hmm. you like, uh, or been very HTTP centric, um, and at times less so. Uh, th this is one place where uh, my colleagues at uh, VMware now um, have been working hard to uh, develop what serverless streaming looks like. Um, so the group I was in, the Pivotal Function Service Group, uh, responsible for a, pro a, a uh, open source effort called Project Riff, excuse me, uh, Riff, R-I-F-F, -F, Project Rift, uh, Project Riff, Riff, yeah. Riff as in a you know, small piece of music. And uh, the, the thing that's been a guiding light for the group working on Riff has been that streaming is different in kind, not just in quantity, from you know, one thing at a time. So if you, you, you look at them sort of superficially, you know, one request at a time and one message event, you know, whatever at a kind, you're like, oh, these are the same. Um, but but you and I, you know, both both know the twist in this story, which is that they're not right. alike at all. The analogy I sometimes use is like, okay, if I want, you know, boxes delivered to my house, there's one one scenario where, you know, a truck drives up the street with one box in it, and then I go out to the box and I get the box and I come back in the house. And there's another scenario where I get a conveyor belt from the factory into my living room. And sure, both of those bring me what looks like a box at a time, but the dynamics of those two systems are wildly different. And the dynamics matter at scale. You know, when, when you're running a, uh, a business, you know, uh, operations management folks will, will tell you this, like there's, there's a difference between a job shop and there's a difference between, you know, worker-paced lines and machine-paced lines and continuous process. Uh, if, if you went to a mine site and said, you know, uh, we're going to have the people pushing wheelbarrows, but lots and lots of people pushing wheelbarrows to get the iron ore from the pile to the ship, you would be looked at like a lunatic. Right. These things matter, right? So that's, that's where the Rift team have been very, very active. And there are aspects of the Canadian design that reflect that activity and some that are still sort of looking at a more single event style, I guess if you could, you could put it, um, you know, sort of high level discrete event style, like a, here is a pull request, you know, here is a, a checkout, here is a hit on the web page. And these are still valuable, but those are different from example, for example, from here are 600,000 people doing stuff and we want to come up with an aggregate of their behavior so that we can decide whether we need to change the banner today. Um, you can achieve that one message at a time, but it's going to kind of require a lot of uh, state and overhead and a lot of cluster plumbing. You still need that true streaming capability. Yes. The confusion between you, you gave the illustration of a conveyor belt going into my living room. Um, we just had a wedding in the family a couple months ago, and it very much felt like there was an Amazon conveyor belt coming into the living room with all the things arriving. Um, and, the, the the difference you you give that example as you know the streaming thing and then just a truck coming and giving you a box uh, as the synchronous thing it's easy to see the confusion because like if if the the unit of work you perform on the package is you create an Instagram unboxing video for each one um, well you know you're still making an unboxing video each time 
Um, but mm-hmm. the you said the dynamics are different. The dynamics of the integration between the systems is is what's fundamentally different. You know, once the box, once you've got a box, you do that work, and it's the same work. It's mm-hmm. you go through your same unboxing flow as you would, regardless of how it came to you. But um, the the conveyor belt coming to you compared to and you know that conveyor belt is there and boxes get on it and you don't know how but it's connected to you and they come into you uh you know you, you're not worrying about how to discover no, nobody else is worrying about how to discover where you are they just put things on that belt um mm-hmm. versus well here's this truck and it takes things from a distribution center and it has to figure out a route and it needs to know you know your as it were your name your, your address um mm-hmm. and all of those all of those kind of integration problems attend the truck delivering the package uh, where those integration problems don't go to zero, right? Like people still need to know where the belt is. They want to put a, a box on the belt, um, mm-hmm. but they, they become more manageable. And so the, the value, I guess where this is going is uh, the value of, of a service mesh is less clear when you're doing asynchronous reactive microservices, yes. such as one might do yeah. with Kafka. Yeah, yeah. So, for example, if you're doing um, a request re- response style, then fault injection is wonderful, All right? But of course, there's the business of like the request has to traverse the network. It has to get to the Envoy sidecar. That's it's next to your process. It has to be unboxed and looked at by Envoy, and then it gets passed to your process, which unboxes it and does it all again. Um, versus having a you know the pipeline that goes directly into the process and is only demultiplexed at that point. Uh, you know, there's there's fewer hops. There are fewer places for things to pile up, waiting for a turn. You know, somebody somewhere's going to batch it because that's more efficient. And suddenly, your variance blows out. Um, it, it's interesting. So, I was originally going to write essentially a very different book with the same title. Uh, <laughs> but what the first part was going to be called Mechanics, which is what I'm writing now. Essentially, like how do you use Knative as a as a practical concern? What are the the pieces you put together? How do you use them? How do I do X, Y, and Z? What are the knobs and dials? And there was going to be a second half of the book called Dynamics, which was to discuss these issues. Uh, And my contention was that as you build these systems, at one level, they look the same. You know, I still have methods or functions which receive arguments and then return something or have an error. That part hasn't changed. But the ratio of stuff that happens inside any given process to the amount of connective tissue, if you like, is very different now. The surface-to-area ratio is very different. Uh, I beg your pardon, the surface-to-volume ratio is very different now. And what we know from, from you know, analogy by, from, from physics in allometric scaling of, of, of living things is that uh, those don't scale at the same rate. You know, a, a, an area scales as, a, as a, a quadratic function and a volume scales as a cubic function, and that's why elephants can't get any bigger. That's why their bones are so thick. You, you can't make something King Kong-sized. It will snap. And uh, that is why it hurts much more to learn to snowboard as an adult than as a child. Well, that's good to know because I'm going to be learning to ski soon. Thank you. Yeah, no, because uh, your mass just, just has grown with the cube of your height and the exactly. surface area of your knees, which are going to be involved in the process, only mm-hmm. grows with the square. So this is, the math Definitely. is not in your favor. So anyway, go on. It, it, it's not, especially when, when uh, there are brownies easily available so yes yes uh that, that's that's part of it and, and a similar sort of thing that like okay if if events are spending much of their time traversing a graph uh then it starts to look more like a a queuing problem you have, have a series of uh, like a, a a queue graph those have dynamics 
um, that are non-obvious. So the habits of thought you may have developed in a world where everything was in a single process or even in a handful of processes, uh, where the queues did exist at like a CPU level or at an operating system level, but were so fast you never saw them except under extreme circumstances. Now those are the common case. You're going to see those dynamics and problems constantly. And it's going to be surprising unless you update your mental model. Uh, and it's a similar thing with, with streaming systems. And this is, this is where, you know, like I, I get to do your work for you and so tell people that reactive systems have, you know, some pretty critical advantages in this respect. Uh, they're much better at, at robustly governing their own behavior uh, as sort of self, self-driving or systems with emergent behavior. Um, and none of this is original. Like, I'm not a genius who saw all of this. I just read books about how right. factories work, right? And, and like, again, you know, related to economics, it's sort of, you know, like a kissing cousin with economics is, you know, people push stuff through factories and there's been many attempts of how to do these things. But the same dynamics show up because it's stuff moving through queues or moving through buffers uh, that takes time and, and has mass and location and these properties are in common with data. Uh, a reactive system is very much like a pull-based manufacturing system. So it's something like Kanban, or uh, there's another one that's often used called Conwhip Constant Work in Progress, uh, which is similar. And essentially because of that nature, although you may not pick the configuration exactly, it's still a much more robust system. It's much more capable of dealing uh, with misconfigurations or, or selections of poor configurations. Whereas something like a, a push-based system, like the classic MRP systems, uh, where you had a computer plan out the precise and perfect plan, that plan may be better on paper, but it's very uh, non-robust. It's very sensitive to mistakes. Um, and it's very easy to suddenly discover that you have huge amounts of inventory piling up in funny places. Um, and we've discovered this the hard way in computers. So. You know, we're like, oh, we'll connect everything with queues and the queues will deal with the variation and it'll be awesome and it's really elegant, and it is. And then one day, one of the queues blows up, you know, or we find that it's really, really slow and we can't understand why. Or sometimes it's really, really slow and sometimes it's really, really fast and there doesn't seem to be an obvious reason why. At least with a reactive system, it's pushing the pressure back up the line. And this is something that definitely the Rift team are very conversant with. Reactive programming is really a strong suit of uh, folks working on Spring and around Spring who constitute sort of the bulk of folks who work on Rift uh, by origins. It's still evolving, I would say, in Knative. I think it is going to make it in as a concept. And I think also systems built on Knative or around Knative will be able to entail this. Where I think Knative really shines right now is in taking an existing system and evolving it in that direction. Like, it, it might not be great. Well, that's not fair. You can do a greenfield thing, but you're going to start to run into these, um, these sort of software physics problems. But taking an existing system and starting to decompose it into parts that don't need to be synchronous, which can survive being asynchronous, you know, spinning off stuff that happens in the background. This is where Knative really shines. And I think uh, reading between the lines here, you're saying that Knative, yes, was born in this request response world, but through Riff and other things in progress and, you know, the overall contributions of... From folks from many companies. The reactive culture of, you know, the, the, of the entity formerly known as Pivotal uh, really are bringing it more into a more native role in asynchronous systems. I think so. And obviously my view is biased because I'm a, uh, a Vima, a Pivot, and uh, 
but you know, in, in fairness, you know, there are, there are lots of smart people on this. Um, there are some very smart people from uh, from Google, and you got to remember that Google implies uh, some some real luminaries in this space. Um, there's there's some really great folks from Red Hat who are involved, and Red Hat has you know reactive religion now uh, in a lot of ways. Um, so I think I think it's it's evolving in that direction. The the tricky part is squaring the circle of uh, you know, reactive and what is the antonym of reactive in software design, by the way? Um, reactive and pre. I'm not sure. I say synchronous. But that's not exactly the antonym, but it's, you know, it's kind of. Yeah. It's tricky, isn't it? Hmm. Non-reactive, I guess. Um, we'll push systems. That's evolving. I, I still think that, I'll put it this way. One of the things we were all really excited about with Lambda early on was that it lets you do essentially like shell scripting for AWS, right? You could just have little dabs of glue that tied things together or a bit like Perl, right? You could just write a bunch of little Perl scripts and they pulled this from here and connected it to that and everybody was very happy until, you know, uh, CodeGolf came along. But um, by itself, that doesn't make it a streaming system. And a similar thing with, with Knative. I can use Knative to integrate uh, disparate systems that would otherwise struggle to talk to each other and to do it in a sensible way that's declarative and highly visible uh, versus you know having a mystery endpoint on a web server somewhere or a shell script you know in the back of my repository that I run on Tuesdays with a cron job you know at least this way I have some YAML it's checked in I can see it I can monitor it I can manage it um, but then of course if you are building a system in which you know the momentum of data is your core consideration uh, then you're still going to need specialized streaming systems I think at this stage in the evolution industry uh, I think Knative will and and has a chance to become a general framework or a common language, if you like, for that for that use case. That's still evolving, though. My guest today has been Jacques Chester. Jacques, thanks for being a part of Streaming Audio. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. And there you have it. If you're still listening, you get a special discount code for sticking with us all the way to the end. You can use the code PODCON19, that's P-O-D-C-O-N-1-9, to get 40% off all Manning publications in all formats. Just enter PODCON19 during checkout on manning.com, and that 40% off is all yours. Enjoy it. And I hope this podcast was helpful to you. And if you want to discuss it more or ask a question, you can always reach out to me on Twitter at at TLBerglund. That's T-L-B-E-R-G-L-U-N-D. Or you can leave a comment on a YouTube video or reach out to us in community Slack. There's a Slack sign-up link in the show notes if you'd like to join that group. And while you're at it, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and to this podcast wherever fine podcasts are sold. If you subscribe through iTunes, be sure to leave us a review there. That helps other people discover the podcast, which we think is a good thing. Thanks for your support, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.